Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. As befits the War College's overall responsibility to train strategic leaders, not to mention the name of my department, we at A Better Peace are always interested in the release of national strategic documents. Previously, we have had guests on A Better Peace to discuss the Biden administration's national security strategy and national defense strategy. Today, we are gathered to discuss the National Intelligence Strategy. This very brief document, at least in this unclassified version, outlines the intelligence community's priorities for this administration in six broad goals, from position the intelligence community for intensifying strategic competition to enhance resilience. In her introductory letter, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines echoes themes in previous strategic documents about the threats we face and the need to deepen and develop relationships with partners and allies, concluding, quote, our support to policymakers, operators, and warfighters is critically dependent on our ability to look beyond the immediate horizon to ensure the intelligence community is well postured to address emerging threats, promote national resilience and innovation, defend our competitive advantage, and promote shared prosperity, close quote. So what does all that mean in practice? What does this strategy tell us about Washington's plans to confront either the pacing challenge of China or the aggression of Russia or any of the other potential threats lurking in this ever complex world? To help us better understand the content and context of this national intelligence strategy, we are delighted to have with us a War College colleague who is also a leading expert on the intelligence community and its relationship to U.S. national security, Dr. Genevieve Lester. Dr. Lester is the DeSirio Chair of Strategic Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. She is also an Associate Fellow for Strategic Intelligence at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. She holds a Ph.D. and M.A. in Political Science from the University of California, Berkeley, an M.A. in International Economics and International Law and Organizations from the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and a B.A. in History from Carleton College. And we are delighted that she's made her way to us here in Carlisle today. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Jen Lester. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's right. And let the record show, Dr. Lester has also been a host on A Better Peace. So she is a uh, uh, a veteran of this program, although she hasn't spent as much time on the other side of the table. Uh, so it's, it's going to be fun for all of us. So Jen, I, I have to start out by just asking about this the, the purpose of a document like this, especially when we consider so much of what the intelligence community does is supposed to be secret. Um, What does a public statement of a national intelligence strategy mean, and how is this version of the document any different from previous versions? Oh, Ron, that's an excellent question. And I think it, it it opens the door to a lot of bigger questions on the role of strategic documents that you've already touched upon in your series, which is a fantastic idea, I think, as well, because we need to all be very aware of where we're headed with these things. So these these guidance documents, they're, they're that. They're strategic guidance. They're a way forward, a way of framing the issues, and a way of signaling 
what the priorities of the administration are. So in this case, they're, they're signaling to the intelligence community itself, to adversaries and to allies, um, to the rest of the broader government, what the intelligence community thinks of as its priorities and how they nest within the broader strategic and defense priorities of this of the Biden administration. So mm-hmm. this one is really... It's, it frames the issues that the administration finds most important within the sphere of intelligence. Um, it's a great question also in terms of how this has changed. When we're looking at these documents, as you well know, um, we look at the variation over the course of years. We look at how they develop, how they shift. Um, I would argue we also look at the language that's used, what's prioritized, how do we think about the different threats, how are they framed, what threats are included and excluded. And obviously in the the current strategic documents, we're seeing a wider range of threats, including climate change, uh, pandemics, these types of issues. So what I find very interesting um, is to go back to the first start of the national intelligence strategy and think back to 2005, Mm -hmm. to think back to these initial, this, this beginnings of how these were done. And obviously 2005 is in the wake of the IRTPA. It, um, it is the, the stand up of the ODNI office of the director of national intelligence that was stood up to unify the intelligence community. And I think that you, we will find some of these words as we talk through this have penetrated throughout the last 20 years. One of them is unify, integrate. Mm-hmm. How do we build a whole actual community out of the disparate parts? And so in 2005, we see the framework for that established. We see a, a, a demonstration of what the different roles are within the ODNI, what the priorities are. Those priorities at that time were, of course, signaling to the world, signaling to the community, and signaling to the, the rest of the nation that we're focusing on counterterrorism, we're focusing on homeland security, we're also focusing on partnering mm-hmm. and inclusion. And that, by that, I mean inclusion within the community, information sharing, also with, with different partners. Um, in that case, it was local tribal leaders. It was engaging with law enforcement. How do we deal with terrorism within the nation? These new, you know, new for us threats, and how do we frame um, those threats for the rest of the world? So that's 2005. Um, would you like to weigh in there a little bit on your well, impressions? Well, a couple of things, because like first of all, is just going exactly what you were talking about in 2005. Two things come to mind: one historical and one current, and that is historical. I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out one of my favorite cliches, which I think I used have used at least four times previously on a better piece. So I apologize to my listeners. And there's the there's the old joke about Brazil when people say Brazil is the superpower of the future and always will be. Um, and so the idea that we're talking about sort of an aspirational uh, uh, development, the unity of the American intelligence community um, goes at least as far back as the National Security Act of 1947, the creation of a director of central intelligence who was supposed to unify what back then was fewer than a dozen, but was still multiple intelligence communities. So we keep talking about the need for greater bureaucratic coordination. And yet the more we talk about it, well, the further away the actual uh, goal recedes from us. And so I'd like, to, I'd like to touch on that a little bit based on your experience of studying the community. Like, why is it we keep saying we need more coordination when on a bureaucratic level, right, we're up to, was it 17, 18, 19, 18, mm-hmm. 18, um, <laughs> 18 organizations, right? They keep right? growing. <laughs> they keep growing, right? And so what do we do is we create another organization, right, the ODNI, which is supposed to be over the top of all of them. But you know, dot, 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 right? We have this 
sort of basic organizational problem of existing companies, existing, I say company on purpose, existing companies know um, that they own certain things or that, and they might not want to share. And so is it, is it a failure of, is it a failure of imagination? Is it a failure of political will? Or is it just a natural result of the existence of intelligence organizations that coordination is real hard among people who are trying to keep secrets? What do you think? You just said failure of imagination. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which 9-11 uh, commission report always sort of strikes fear in our hearts. Right. I think you raised several different points here that I'd just like to highlight. One is your use of the word aspirational, mm-hmm. because I think that is a penetrating theme throughout all of these documents. These are mm-hmm. aspirational documents. This is what we are aiming for. These are our yeah. goals. These are our strategic strategic goals, our strategic focus. Do we Do we actually intend to meet them? Is that actually part of the purpose of these documents or not? And I leave that as a question. I think it's an open question. Yeah, because we might not have to. We might not have to reach them as long as we. It's like like you if you when you advise when I advised undergraduates and I'd say you don't need to know what you want to do with your life when you're 19 years old. You just have to want to know because eventually you'll figure it out. Um, Is this is this what what's going on here too? And that's a good question. And I think it, I think success could arguably include incremental progress in these directions. I don't know what the metrics would be, for example, the resilience question. Well, what does that look like? How do we measure it? Do we only find our capability of measurement in failure? Because I think that's a, that's a big question when we're talking about intelligence. We see it when it fails. So we frame our responses to change through the lens of failure. What does success look like? We don't see a lot of that. It's it's buried internally. And back to your question, I think we have a lot to unpack here. I think thanks for throwing pretty much everything but the kitchen sink at me. Um, I figure might as well get might as well get it all out there. <laughs> uh, I I think it's the question of um, change, cultural change, bureaucratic change. When there is a failure, back to the point about failure, we. We say the, particularly the intelligence community needs to reform, it needs to change, it needs to adapt. The question is, it does serve a purpose. It is designed the way it's designed to meet customer needs, for example. And these different agencies have grown up over time to meet individual needs. And the, the, the range of needs is is huge. So we're talking, you know, the services have all of their different particular needs and we're, you know, treasury has theirs and state has theirs. And we are saying, okay, do that, do that, meet the needs of your, your secretary of state and your, you know, the, the, obviously the, the primary customer, the U S president, and also share and also integrate and also become more cohesive and and um, interdependent, and that language runs throughout this document. Interdependent, cut you know, drop barriers, drop boundaries, share more. And I think that there's a tension there that's that's that is just actually integral to any organization, not just a secret one, that protects its technical core. It, by right. its technical core, I mean it protects what it has to do every day mm-hmm. and the bureaucratic structure that allows that to happen, whether that is running operations somewhere or whether that's providing briefings or, you know, supporting the force out, you know, in, in, in a combatant command somewhere. All of those are real needs that actually have to be met. And so I think that organizations actually very naturally protect that. 
So I think, just back to your question, I think I've I've sort of generalized away from the intelligence community, unfortunately. We'll get back to that. But I think that dynamic is pervasive in any organization. Yeah. Well, and and related to that, because this is something I noticed in this document, and I don't know if it's true in previous ones, is that in the talk about coordination, right? There is a quote that I that, that I pulled out that says, the IC must work across in, in organizational boundaries and collaborate with other with other government agencies, both federal and local. That, that jumped out at me, right? Because here we're getting an interesting question. It's, it's one thing to say, you know, we need to, the CIA and the FBI have to get along with each other. But how should we imagine our intelligence communities dealing with other layers of government in our federal system? Because a part of us, I think, are a little allergic to the idea of a national intelligence agency getting involved with our local police force. And I, and so I'm curious about you know, how do we even imagine what what that kind of is that, is that just the phrase they throw out to show how they want to be willing to come to cooperate with everybody? But what would that kind of cooperation even look like? Well, we've been there before in mm-hmm. this discussion, and I think yeah. um, to harken back to the the origins of this document and to the ODNI, we were post 9/11. We were looking at do we create a domestic intelligence agency? Do mm-hmm. we have that focused in an agency that's its own thing and it's separate from the others? And there there's quite a bit of natural fear of that. Um, and so we'll throw words around. Do we need our own MI5, for example? example. Um, but then we go back and and there's a reflexive reaction to that. The reason that we don't have that is because it's really not part of the American security culture. Mm -hmm. So there's fear there. We don't want in the old words that the American Gestapo. Right. And when let's also remember to take a little bit of the historian um when when the original intelligence community was stood up as you said it's 1947 it's in the wake of world war ii it's in the wake of a sort of a manichaean worldview that we developed to think we were vanquishing this fascist this autocratic force therefore let us not have our security institutions mirror those in any way right. this is my own language right. i'm not but sure. um so I think it's really important to think about those sort of historical trends, cultural trends that inhibit uh, exploration of something like a domestic intelligence agency. And we saw this also. We saw, okay, we need information sharing. Um, we need it to increase. We need to expand who is involved. So who gets this information? And it went to non-traditional players. It went, you know, you got in- intelligence flows going to local law enforcement, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that has many different outcomes. One is do these local agencies need this information? Is it at the right level? Are they getting too much information? What is the right amount of information in that case? So I think all of these balances need to be thought through. And then I think also in the language that we traditionally use to talk about the intelligence community, we tend to get quite extreme in the pendulum swings. (laughs) If it is a failure of imagination, a failure to share information, and we're too atomized, we're too fragmented, we, we're not integrated, we don't have the same systems, we don't have the same language, which is all said about you know, the failures that, that allowed 9-11 to happen, then we swing back to centralization mm-hmm. and coordination and integration. And we're seeing that in this document. Um, and other countries do have the same pendulum flow, actually. It's quite common in, in terms of organization. You know, uh just uh, not not to be too flip about this, but I, I keep thinking about the, whenever I see the phrase IC for intelligence community, I always think about CI or counterintelligence and you realize that just as these two things are mirror images of each other, it's hard to build a community if, if I'm in the counterintelligence business, right? I spend all of my time basically not trusting anybody. 
right? And, and so how am I supposed to do my job? And this, of course, has been a problem famously within the CIA. It's within a lot of organizations is how do you, how do you share information while also maintaining security? And, and, and so I'm, I'm curious how you feel about that or the, how that fits in with what we're talking about here. I think it's a great point. It really does fit into the full discussion, actually, not only of the history of this mm-hmm. that I've, I've belabored, I think, a little bit, but also to the current document and actually what we're seeing, for example, in Ukraine. So mm-hmm. this document talks about the importance of partnerships. We're thinking of how do we you know, share better information. We are exhorted to share more information, drop the barriers, all of these different ways to do this. Let's get more technological capability. Let's get more information to our partners. We need to do this. Well, this is actually just happening naturally Mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing so many new ways of using intelligence. The democratization of intelligence is one way of putting this, that we are integrating social media. We're integrating sort of local apps. Your parking app can be used, you know, to, to see troop movements and just different various things. So we're seeing this in real life while we're seeing these old structures, these old bureaucratic structures and policy lag behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I find that a very interesting juxtaposition, actually. Um, How do we, you know, war always causes change. It destroys and causes change. And I think we're seeing that as well. Yeah. Well, because the idea that the Biden administration made the decision to release information, what it knew about Russian troop movements before the invasion, even though, you know, without worrying about, I, I I mean, I'm sure they worried some about sources and methods, but I would say, but they released a lot of information early because they felt that it was better to let the Russians know exactly what we saw, um, which both which both put them on on notice, but also robbed them of a chance to make claims that we would not be able to disprove. <laughs> Excellent point. Um, As we've called it, pre-bunking or strategic declassification. I think that's a fascinating point because it is reflective of what we're talking about in this document in terms Mm -hmm. of who is a party to this. So when they release this information, when the Biden administration releases information, you got it beaming over to Putin. Not only do we know what you're planning, but we've penetrated your decision-making cycle. We're also sending that message to allies. Mm -hmm. We know what they're doing and we're on your side. We're sending it to the American public to, as you say, debunk the narrative, re-own, reclaim the narrative that we saw being framed by Putin in a certain way. So I think it was along many different ways and it, it, it was many different avenues, actually, how that information was used. And it was very, I mean, people were very, you know, people in the community were very uncomfortable with its use. But I think it it, it provided such an, a fascinating context for what was about to follow and also just showed that we are in a different, I would argue this, we are in a different, much more social, much more open and transparent world for intelligence right now. More players are involved. And the document talks about private sector and academia, and including non-state actors and other organizations, other parts of the government. But I think we're seeing that writ large. We're mm-hmm. seeing the public be involved, social media be involved. We're seeing individuals on the ground, seeing troop movements or seeing things happen. Or, you know, we're seeing imagery um, instantaneously distributed from private sector or you know, Starlink, for example. All for of example. these things are actual partnerships happening. And it not only is something we should do, should be aspirational as according to this document, but it's also something, how do we incorporate this quickly? So if you're getting information in real time about, uh, you know, combat that's happening and it's from a, a video that someone's mm-hmm. taking, um, some in, some private person is taking and, and, you know, uploading, well, you have to have some, you have to have analysis happen. So how do we keep that coherent? How do we keep 
analytical methods, so to speak, in, in that frame, we've got to think about how to integrate this stuff better in real time. See, and, and that, of course, is, you know, the, the, the time pressure, the pressure to make decisions, the pressure that, that as soon as things are, are known to the public, the public will want to know how we're going to respond. Um, this gets to, a, to, to one of those other big points. Um, you talked a little bit about resilience and how difficult it is. You know, resilience implies, right, this is how you'll respond after things go badly. Right. But, but in general, we can talk about how the world is much more open, the world that there's much more information available, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into believing that we know everything that's going on or every piece of information that's moving around in the intelligence community. It's probably better that we, in some ways, it's better that we don't. But what that does is it makes it difficult to know whether goals are being met or not met. It makes it, makes it difficult for us to know how well coordination is going until something bursts out into public knowledge. Um, how can the intelligence community reassure the public that they're really doing what they say that they're doing um, while also preserving their sort of natural desire to keep some things quiet? Oh, it's an excellent point. And I don't have a definitive answer because I don't think there is one, but I can talk to different examples of what's been tried. And some of that has just been opening up the community and opening up access and through sort of what we might term and especially when we're considering the scope of these issues, kind of banal. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe we can have a spy museum, for example, and we will show exhibits and we'll show the the world out there what some of these tools are. They're they're cool, they're fun, and this is kind of what that world is. It's an entree into it. Mm-hmm. Or another example from several years ago um, was Sydney Bristow from Alias, the TV show. Sydney Bristow is a fictional character, um, but her picture was uh, her picture. The actress Jennifer Garner was mm-hmm. on the CIA website saying True. "I chose to serve" or some some something like that. And and I found that very interesting the conflation of reality and TV, but interesting in that it was a conduit to the public to start to get interested in understand a little bit of the community, a little bit of CIA activity. I mean, she wears these crazy wigs. It's completely impossible to believe this could be real, but it catalyzed interest or similar to Homeland. When you see the actors and directors and their advisors speaking together in a forum to talk about what's true, what's not, why do we set it up this way? What what are we trying to convey? This blurring of a line was one way of thinking about the public reaction, the public engagement with intelligence. And it raises a bigger issue, one that I focus on a great deal in my work, which is what should the role the relationship between the public and the intelligence community be how much do they need to know when should a secret be a secret and when should it be open in a transparent, which should be a very transparent, um, engaged democracy. And this is going in a slightly different direction, but I think we are actually really having to refocus on some of those questions as we see, as you mentioned, the opening of, of that world of the intelligence community. We're seeing things and um, we're seeing things happen. We're seeing more engagement, more people involved, as I already mentioned. And also, I mean, DNI Clapper, when he was in the position said many years ago, we need to expose more people to what happens, more of the public, more of the regular people to what happens within the intelligence community. So they have a context when failure happens, because the way that works is obviously when a failure happens, it becomes publicly exposed. That's how the public sees public, not just the public, but decision makers, everybody sees the IC. And then they think, well, that their failure, we've got to reorganize them or, or they condemn them. It's also very easy to condemn the IC because they are a secret realm. So, you know, only, policy successes and intelligence failures, as the saying goes. And I think reframing that so that there's 
there is a, a, a context for all mm -hmm. of this is pretty crucial if you want to think about how to fruitfully and effectively engage the public. But again, right. I want to just leave out there the question of how how engaged they should be. Sure. Well, because I, I know when, when one thinks about the uh, when one thinks about the the public reaction to a movie like Zero Dark Thirty, which there was clearly some cooperation between the administration, the IC, and the filmmakers, because this was ultimately a story they wanted to make sure they told uh, correctly. Um, even though I, there are a lot of things in that movie that I that I think of, you know beggar belief. The biggest one is that um, it, it, that uh, the director would have uh, that Leon Panetta ever had lunch in the uh, CIA cafeteria, but I don't know if, I, if somebody can prove that one wrong on me. But I was thinking like the, the, that that raised a lot of a lot of questions, right? People, is it appropriate, right? Is it you know how, when does it when does it go from highlighting the the success of the intelligence community to cheerleading for the administration that happened to be in charge at that time, right? That's a, an interesting question. But because the the flip side example of that is a childhood example, and that is the popularity of the old FBI television show. That from the fifties well into the seventies, the FBI uh, totally took its its image in hand and collaborated with uh, television producers and film producers um, that. The director Hoover had people who were marked as FOBs and EOBs, friends of the bureau or enemies of the bureau, and made sure that FOBs got information to make television programs. And you actually had a number one show on TV, FBI, that showed off the organization. Eventually, people get a little nervous about that. They think that's a little too heavy handed. But this question of, you know, how should the intelligence community be trying to shape its public image, right? Having Sidney Bristow appear, like when Alias started, I don't think they were doing it with the cooperation of the CIA, but the CIA looked around and saw, hey man, this is working. We should, we want to get in on some of this. But I remember there was an effort to create a television program about the agency, which I believe did have the cooperation of the CIA, but didn't go anywhere. Um, but so this, this larger question of, you know, how do we feel about government agencies trying to shape their public image, right? When is that okay? And when is that somehow, you know, when, when should we feel uncomfortable that they're trying to sell us a bill of goods? Well, and it, well, it's, it's an excellent question. I also think back when you, you were mentioned of the FBI and mm -hmm. they made children's games, G-Men yes. and all of this stuff. And I mean, you're starting early, you know, you start with, yes. with, with children. And I think we, ooh, I mean, it's, there's, it's also a very particular American phenomenon to have these heroic stories for, of right. these figures. And I think that that is also very interesting to just return back to the document we're talking mm -hmm. about here, resilience and all of the rest of this is, I think of that as a catch-all. Mm -hmm. Um, in many ways, that, that that goal, resilience, yes, I think in reality, it's incredibly important to just be flexible, to be able to defense in depth, mm -hmm. to use the engineering term, to have ways of adapting, um, but also a way of saying to the world in this document that there are things we can't, we don't know about yet. They're mm -hmm. emergent. We will figure this out and we must have a structure, a set of institutions that are able to bounce back in yeah. response. Um, and I find that it's a very interesting way of, of signaling that, that sentiment. Well, and, and the, the question of, of being open to the community that you're supposed to defend, right, raises issues of recruitment, retention, promotion within the organization. And uh, one of the goals is to create a diverse workforce. And I don't want to, um, you know, there are a bunch of different aspects of this to talk about. But the issue of is, what do you think, how do you as a scholar of the IC, how do you view the IC's work to um, attract and recruit a workforce drawn from across 
the country, right? Who who signs up? Like we we talk about this a lot here at the Army War College, right? Everybody is wringing their hands on recruiting and retention, but how does it work in the IC? Do we have a sense of how well the intelligence community is attracting the type of of people that they want to attract and keeping them in the organization to do the work they want to do? You raise a very interesting question about the recruiting and retention that I think the issues are cross-cutting across government at this time. I mean, I think that we'll see in the intelligence community that it was very attractive, especially post 9-11, huge numbers of applicants to the various agencies, particularly the CIA, a call to service, a call to, to, to protect um, the mystique of the intelligence community and doing secret work. So I think there will always be a pull factor. There's always mm-hmm. an attraction of this kind of work. Um, but it's being met by other frictions. And one of which is the balance between re- recruitment of the communities that we need and the necessary security clearances and what is perceived of as a security risk. And I think wow. we've seen that over the past couple of decades. We might need a Farsi speaker, but we that person has many um, contacts in Iran and it's very hard to clear them. So how do we get the language skills? Do you pull from the diaspora? Who are you talking to? What are the target populations we need to get? Those types of things. So I think diversity and recruitment and retention is, is slightly different in mm-hmm. the intelligence community than one could say, for example, in a regular federal agency where the needs are different. So we see shifting in terms of I mean, definite efforts being made. And I think that the, in generally the climate, the environment for um, diverse populations is, is generally pretty welcoming from what I know, what I've experienced and um, what I've heard. Mm-hmm. But I still think we do have a balance to strike better to improve when it comes to what security risks are, how we characterize those, how we decide who who's worth taking a risk on with with highly classified material. So I think there will always be a friction there. I think improvements are being made in that area, but again, uh, there's there's a ways to go. I would say also in, in what skill sets need to be recruited because we will we will range this, and I, I find it a little bit interesting in this document that that isn't actually that new. We need more hmm. people from the STEM community. We need more language groups. We need more regional expertise, you know, uh, subject matter expertise in regional areas. Um, but I do think we're having, we are, we are needing more technology, more, um, acuity in AI and, in, in big data and understanding those systems and, and getting ahead of that. We keep saying that artificial intelligence is going to solve all of our volume problems. Well, I think it will introduce new problems as right. well. And how do we educate the workforce to be able to grapple with that? How do you get the the right tools in the right hands, get the right communities? And especially, especially when you're recruiting from STEM communities, they have a lot of other options. So, right. and they're going to get a lot more money in the private sector or in some cases in academia. So how do you, A, recruit the right people from those communities or B, upskill the ones that you have? And I think those those are really crucial problems that I actually work with a little bit on how do we develop various types of programs for technology to, to, to try and tackle those different objectives. I would also add here something that is not talked about in this document and we don't talk about often, which is how do we educate the consumers of intelligence? Um, Because they will, as, as, as decision cycle speeds up, as technology is used more, as this is happening in real time, and as non-traditional flows of information are generated, intelligence information, we are going to have to have these decision makers be more adept at the tools and understanding what they're saying. And I don't 
that's something I work on as well. And I think that that is something that should start to be integrated into these documents and into the worldview around intelligence. And so, so it, does that all come back to, and as we're, we're approaching the, uh, the end of this conversation, unfortunately, but this comes back to the purpose of documents like this and the idea of expectation setting. Um, it's one thing to be aspirational, which is always good. I, I have aspirations too. Um, but, um, but should I, that the flip side of aspiration set aspirational is, um, being honest about your limits, right? So we can, we can know more. We can't know everything. We will try to know more in these areas because we think we should, but we also need to understand that there are some things that are just going to be a lot harder to know than others. Um, I, agencies, any, any organization is reluctant to say what it's not sure it can do because there's always the fear that somebody else is going to step up and perhaps disingenuously say, well, heck I can do that. Um, and then there goes your budget and there goes your, your budget, there, yeah, <laughs> there goes your budget, which is the most important thing. Right. And, um, you know, let's, let, we'll lay that one out there too. But the, um, but, but that question of, you know, how do you, how do you speak honestly, if you want to educate your consumers and you also want to make sure that you're training your own people appropriately, how do you talk about, you know, what, what we can and can't do or what we can realistically expect to be able to do? I like to end with a gigantic question. So let's keep everybody. Yes, coming, thank right? you for the gigantic <laughs> question. Um, I think it's, well, I think you keep the, the uh, speaking as a government employee, you speak, you keep the language vague. <laughs> Fair. You keep the aspirations out there, but you say we have all other categories of resilience, of other mm -hmm. things that, that we are working on that, um, but it's an excellent question. I don't. I think I have a satisfactory answer completely to it, right. because I think that we always get bound up in bureaucratic politics as well, as we already both jokingly commented on. You you fear for your budget. You fear for being right. edged out by a different agency or a different community or a different or the private sector, for example, someone right. who can do it faster. Right. So um, that is a, it's an excellent question because it really is how do you set expectations? And I think that that's a great question in terms of thinking strategically overall. How do you define what that is and how do you reach those? Right. And so in the end, right, you know, a recognition that it's a job that doesn't have a finish line, that it's something that every day you're going to wake up and there's going to be either old challenges that still stay with us or brand new challenges coming up. And the, the, the best thing perhaps that you can train people for is to be cons consistently intellectually curious enough to be able to handle the new challenges as they emerge. Um, and to be optimistic yeah. that those incremental developments are getting somewhere. There you go. And that's, that's why I'd like to, I'd like to wrap up with that thought there is that, you know, th that perhaps we won't, we won't, we're not going to wake up one day and find out that all of the threats have been resolved. Um, but at least we can feel relatively confident that the people who are responsible for dealing with the threats are moving in the right direction. Um, and does the, uh, so should we expect, uh, if, if this NIS is for this four years of this administration, um, do we know when the next one is scheduled to come out? Do we know on what cycle they do these things? Every four years. Every four years. So it has to be every four years. All right. So and four years from within now, the other yeah. strategic documents. So this yeah. is also something that, as we opened with, this is part of a series. Um, right is nested within other priorities written in this, the national security strategy, national defense strategy. These all nest within each other to frame the overall strategic goals of the administration. So we're seeing a piece of this, mm -hmm. uh, but not the whole picture. Right. Um, and I guess even if, even if the documents themselves don't specifically say what's different from last time, we can count on you to come back in four years and talk to us about what the next one says. Right, Jen Lester? 
Absolutely. I'd be thrilled to come back. Well, that's excellent. Well, Jen Lester, thank you for joining us today on A Better Peace to talk about intelligence and all that is related thereunto. Um, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And thanks all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment um, and consider the value of this conversation and consider subscribing to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because there is no secret to the idea that signing up for A Better Peace and subscribing to A Better Peace will actually allow more people to know about us. And we are actually in the business of wanting people to know things. Um, so consider that. Uh, consider rating and reviewing this podcast because that's how more people can find out about it. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And even if this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from The War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.